Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Stuart Y. McDougall. Mr. McDougall is a visiting scholar at Cornell University. His in-depth book, titled Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, chronicles the making of Kubrick's extraordinary film and its enduring legacy that carries on to this day. Well, I've always uh, loved Kubrick's work, and I think this is uh, one film that really stands out. I think when he hit his stride in the 60s and early 70s um this and and clockwork orange was made it had such an impact in the united states and england and of course as you know it was that um kubrick pulled it out of circulation in england mm-hmm. and an interesting thing i was working on the book for cambridge university press and i got back responses from people in england saying well we haven't seen this movie you know, in 30 years or something oh. uh, so it um it was only available, um, you know, by bootleg copy if you took a DVD or a video or a laser disc or something back to England. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was interested by the impact. I was interested by uh, its place really in the development of Kubrick's work, the sorts of things he he both experiments with there that he carries on in later films as well as um, the developments on things he'd been working on er- in earlier films. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I was fascinated when finally when Eyes Wide Shut came out to see all the links between that movie and um, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, we can talk and, about those two. I, mean, I think it's we, quite we, fascinating. We definitely will. And and I'm I'm particularly fond of Eyes Wide Shut. So, uh, I mean that that's probably my 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 favorite Kubrick movie I mean the one that moves me the most so uh I've been speaking a lot about that film with 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 uh, in all the interviews we've done here so we'll definitely get into that okay um, good now the origins of, of a clockwork orange just so we can set the stage for our listeners this is based upon a Anthony Burgess novel uh what what do you think Kubrick uh attracted Kubrick to the novel and what how did it fit into his personal kind of obsessions, that material? Well, uh, first of all, the, the novel was introduced to him by Terry Southern. Uh, Terry Southern was a writer who was involved uh, in Dr. Strangelove, and really, I think it was the writer, Southern has a very black sense of humor, and Southern was the one who helped transform the novel Red Alert, which is a very sort of straightforward novel into something as bizarre as Dr. Strangelove. Mm -hmm. Um, And he had uh, given a copy of A Clockwork Orange to Kubrick um, about the time of 2001, and uh, you may have known Kubrick was wanting to do a movie on Napoleon after after 2001, and he did extensive research on Napoleon. you know, he amassed these huge archives of notes about Napoleon, and the project fell through, and he was looking for something else to do, and uh, picked up a Clockwork Orange, and um, 
immediately uh, optioned the novel, which uh, Southern had actually optioned early on for $1,000, and then Southern couldn't keep hold keep a, a hold of the option, um, didn't have the money to keep renewing it, so it went to someone else uh, who ended up selling it to uh, Kubrick for 200000 uh, the rights on the novel. And he was taken with it right away. The, the, the language, the structure, the story uh, all appealed to him enormously. Yeah. So he uh, actually asked uh, Burgess to do a script, and Burgess did, and he didn't like the script, so he did it himself pretty much, working very closely from the novel. And he wanted yes. to get Malcolm McDowell. I mean, that was a, also a crucial part of this. He'd seen McDowell in If and was very impressed and thought he'd be perfect for the part. Um, others had been considered for the part when the when the property was still optioned. Um, at one point, the Rolling Stones were thought as a possible group of droogs for the movie version of the yeah. novel. Yes, I read that. Yes, that's that's interesting. Yeah, that would have been that would have been a fascinating movie. But <laughs> but uh, I think McDowell is extraordinary, and it's you know he is he has subsequently said what an important part it was for him, and it's one of those roles that. Uh, marks an actor for the rest of his life, mm-hmm, and there aren't mm-hmm. many such roles. I mean, I think of um, Anthony Perkins in Psycho would be another example, but there aren't many such roles that you just identify forever with that actor and um, that influence everything else that actor plays for the rest of his life. So it was You're a combination ab- of things coming together, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, the availability of Malcolm McDowell, the availability of the novel, um, the timing for him was right. And um, so he proceeded. It's interesting to me how, in large part, his his movies are based upon uh, novels, and how he kind of breaks away from the source material. I mean, I know that Nabokov uh, presented him with a screenplay for Lolita that he more or less discarded as yeah. well. Uh, what, what? It was a huge screenplay too. I mean, it was. Oh, the Lolita, uh, the Lolita it was really was, something. Or? Yeah, yeah, the oh. one that Nabokov did. Yeah, mm. it's been published, his version. Um, but uh, yes, well, Kubrick, he he, there, he did adapt a lot of things, and the remarkable thing is how different they all are, and how how different the movies are, and how different he makes the movies from the sources. You know, he really transforms the material in rather remarkable ways. And the challenges he had with The Clockwork Orange, of course, were enormous. Um, the novel is told in, a, in an invented language that doesn't exist anywhere outside the covers of Anthony Burgess's novel. And the novel also uses uh, inventive, invented composers and compositions. So how do you adapt the work of a composer who doesn't exist? You know, what what sort of <laughs> musical equivalent do you give for that? I mean, and how do you adapt a, a language that doesn't? What do you do with a language that doesn't exist? Burgess has to teach his readers how to read this language in the course of the novel. Yeah. And it's something he does very effectively. Um, and so Kubrick has to do the same thing in the movie. He's going to use so- that language. So, so what, uh, in in your observation, when he adapted this book, uh, what changes did he make to it that were the the most profound to kind of fit his own his own viewpoint and his own voice? Well, 
probably the most important change um, and one of the most controversial is in the um, the choice of the American edition rather than the British edition of the novel. He was given the American edition, which has only 20 chapters. Uh, the British edition has 21 chapters. And there's a final chapter in the, in the British edition, which was published first by Heinemann. And there's a chapter in which uh, Alex pretty much reforms himself and decides to give up violence. Now, there are many stories about how it ended up uh, in a truncated version in America, and Burgess has told different versions himself. Um, but the fact is Norton published it with Burgess's agreement as a novel in 20 chapters, and it ends pretty much where the film ends, except for that very last shot of Alex romping with the woman surrounded by the crowd in Victorian get-up. Um, so that, you know, leaving out that chapter of Reformation changes the novel and changes the whole view of the work rather considerably. That's one thing. Another thing is he tried to um, lighten up, if that's the right word, the violence somewhat, by making the objects of the violence not as uh, vulnerable as they are in the novel. Mm. You know, in the novel, it's a very young girl who's getting raped on stage, for example. Um, it's an old, old man coming back from the library who's attacked at the beginning of the, of the novel. Um, the cat woman is a much older woman in the novel. So he's made some changes in the, the objects of the violence um, with an eye to making it more palatable, I think. Um, those would be a, those would be several of the changes. And, 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 and I'm so sorry. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Stylistically, too. I mean, it, it, the the violence is very stylized and at times very almost balletic. I mean, I'm I'm thinking yes. of the, the gang fight in in the, in the old uh, theater. There was was that a way to, to to make the violence more palatable as well? Do you think? I think it is. Um, in the novel, I mean, the novel, like the film, has most of the violence in the first third of the work. Mm -hmm. uh, the film opens up and it's just you know the first fifteen minutes are horrific in terms of the violence. Um, in the novel, the whole thing is being narrated. The whole novel is being narrated by Alex in NADSAT, which is this invented language that combines Russian, which Burgess had studied, um, begun studying about a year before he wrote Clockwork, and in fact he uh, was sent to Russia by his publisher and spent some time there researching projects and, and was working on the language. So it combines Russian, it combines English, uh, English slang, uh, a sort of gypsy slang, uh, into this invented language. And when you start reading the novel, it's very hard to understand because you have no reference for this language. Mm -hmm. And gradually he teaches us the language as we read it so that by the time we finish the novel, it's quite comprehensible. Um, when, we go, when you go back and read the novel a second time, you're much more aware of what's happening in that first third than you are the first time you read it. So the NADSAT has the effect um, of distancing us from the violence because we, don't quite, we can't quite figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. In the movie, that's not possible um, because both to teach us the language, Burgess has the music and sound and the visuals uh, to help show us what's going on and help us interpret the language. And so he realizes that, that presenting this violence, um, he has to um, 
Well, he, he anesthetizes it somehow. He makes it aesthetic uh, by, as you said, setting it to music, to dance, uh, to song, um, filming it in slow motion, filming it quickly. All these cinematic ways of distorting it and uh, making it more, um, making it easier for the viewer to take. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that the controversy surrounding the film kind of transcended the the graphic nature uh, 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 of some of these scenes. It was more uh, the, the the attitude and the the feel the lack of moral judgment on Alex. Uh, he he doesn't judge Alex. Actually, you can say that he represents he portrays him as someone that uh, enjoys. <laughs> I mean, he, yes, he, he's, he takes he's great, full of life. great pleasure in what he's doing. And, and here's one difference uh, I think between um, the adaptation of this novel and the adaptation of Lolita. I don't feel that he really captures Nabokov's voice in yes. his film of Lolita. Mm-hmm. But this movie, Clockwork Orange, is narrated by Alex, and everything we see is the way Alex has seen it. So when we're looking at these violent acts, we're, even when I, Alex is a part of the violence, we're seeing them through Alex's eyes because he's the one who's telling us this whole story in a way that uh, Humbert Humbert never succeeds in doing, I think, in uh, Kubrick's Lolita. And it's an extraordinary accomplishment. The whole movie is is really narrated by this perspective from that opening close-up on Alex, uh, where the camera pulls back so slowly, this wonderful tracking shot that moves back and reveals slowly the entire uh, milk bar. And then you have the voiceover. And he uses the voiceover so effectively in this movie you know, people often criticize voiceovers as being a, cr- a crutch for the filmmaker. Not so in Kubrick's hands. It's a, a brilliant device, and we identify with Alex. And, of course, he's such a charming guy in spite of what he does, you know. He's yes. just, uh, he has such a, he's so ebullient and enthusiastic and energetic and uh, um, that it, it it's, makes it difficult for us to watch because we like this guy. And yet, at the same time, he's doing these horrific things. What does it say about Kubrick's uh, view on humanity? I mean, is he saying that if if we're all left to our to live by our own id, I mean, th- th- this is the result of that, or what is his view on that? Do you think that's that's a question that people have been debating ever since the movie came out. Mm. Um, and 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 it's a question that keeps coming up with uh, subsequent um, movies by Kubrick. You know, what is uh, is his view of humanity really so dark? Um, and I think finally it is. I mean, this movie is um, a, a wonderful movie. But and what people objected to, interestingly enough, was the violence, which they thought was. Um, influential in social terms. That is one of the reasons that Kubrick withdrew this film was that there were so many newspaper articles in Great Britain about copycat violence. Mm-hmm. Every time there was a violent act, it was being attributed to a clockwork orange. 
and he said to Warner Brothers, "Forget it. We're just going to with you know I'm I'm not interested in this. We're going to withdraw it." So the the first real criticism, or the or the strongest criticism of it, was not so much for its depiction of sexual acts, but for what people thought was uh, a violence that was being picked up and imitated by young people. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, obviously, um, what a tremendous move uh, for a director, for a studio, to pull a film from release uh, at the request of the director. I mean, that's, yeah. that's unprecedented. It, it is unprecedented, and it's quite remarkable. And he was unrelenting in this. I mean, he was still not shown until he died. And it was only after his death that there was a re-release in Great Britain. Mm. Now, did he have any concern uh, about that prior to the f- film's release? I don't think so. There's no evidence of it, no. Mm. Uh, but and about the... the the censor, the, the censor board. Uh, I mean, well, he, there was he, concern about that. Yeah. Um, and in fact, um, when Terry Southern owned the property, he did a screenplay and submitted it to the board, and the board said, uh, "Oh, well, we know this novel, and there, there's no way you can make any movie based on this. It's mm-hmm. not going to pass our board." And in fact, it did pass. Uh, Kubrick's version did pass, but there were considerable protests by um, conservative groups in Great Britain, uh, religious groups, and similarly in the United States. In the United States, he withdrew it for about 30 days, um, edited out a few seconds of footage, and went from an X rating to an R rating. Hmm. Um, And oddly enough, both of them were then in release after that, both versions. There's very slight difference. Um, not like the um, the problems that uh, Eyes Wide Shut encountered, where it was released with that masking, yes, uh, which was so outrageous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, to, it, it, to get to have a director's cut, having the, the director's cut, and then have uh, after the director's death, the studio say, "Well, I think we've got to, you know, this isn't this isn't going to work at all. We have to cover this up." You know what, and we'll get back to Clockwork Orange, but what what always struck me as odd about Eyes Wide Shut is he, he uh, they viewed the film four months before release, and they said Kubrick was, I mean, he was pretty much done with it. That doesn't seem like Kubrick to me. It seemed like he would tinker to the last moment. Well, I agree. I think he, I, I've always wondered about that, because Kubrick was one of these directors who went right down to the wire, Mm-hmm. And sometimes tinkered even after it had been released, as as with the Clockwork Orange. Um, yeah. We'll and never the know exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. In The Shining, uh, we'll never know really what the case was. Um, but you know, there's there's another interest that makes me think of another interesting connection between um, Eyes Wide Shut and Clockwork Orange. Terry Southern, who, as I said, got him interested in. Um, Clockwork Orange wrote a novel called Blue Movie Mm. it came out in 1970 he dedicated it to Stanley Kay and um, Stanley wanted the galleys to read before the novel came out and uh, he read them it's about a a very prominent filmmaker who makes a pornographic film 
and um, Southern it, <laughs> Southern gave the galleys to Kubrick, and and then Kubrick's wife took a look at them, and she said, "If you ever film this, I won't talk to you again." <laughs> um, well, I think that comes back a little on Eyes Wide Shut because I think that in some ways that uh, the scene that proved to be such a problem for the censors is Kubrick's Blue Movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is this is uh, his you know his response to Terry Southern many many years later. But of course, I, I there are lots of other more uh, sort of legitimate uh, connections. The connections um, in both between uh, Beethoven, um, who of course, plays such a large part in the the film of Clockwork Orange as well as in the novel, um, and the use of Beethoven in Eyes Wide Shut, um, the password Fidelio, mm-hmm. which in the novel is not Fidelio. Uh, in the novel, it's Denmark, and huh. the password is the location where the hero's wife has had her has been on vacation and has these fantasies about being in Denmark with this guy. Um, Kubrick changed it to Fidelio, which, uh, as um, Nick says in Eyes Wide Shut, is a Beethoven opera, uh, an opera which is Fidelio or Married Love. Yeah. And um, that that works. Fidelio means literally, I who am faithful. Mm. And so it suggests, you know, a very different orientation for the speaker of Kubrick's film than the speaker of Schnitzler's novella. Mm. Um, Nick also is at the Sonata Cafe, which is another reference to uh, Beethoven. Um, and so it goes. There are a lot of a lot of connections there. Uh, I think that are very interesting. And and the uh, the use of Beethoven really underscores some of the um, important themes of the film. Um, Connecting eyes wide shut in a clockwork orange, you know the nature of vision, of looking, of free will, of the control of the director, and so forth. Um, and and in clockwork, he, I mean, he always he always utilized classical music. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. to ep- epic effect in two thousand one, but uh, yeah. he really started to experiment uh, with it in in clockwork orange. He does, and it's fascinating because what you would ex- what you would have expected 20 years earlier in a movie about juvenile delinquents would be a popular song, you know, rock and roll. And instead, you have these uh, events being choreographed, like the one you mentioned uh, uh, in the theater early on, when um, you have the the battle between the the two groups of, of thugs, basically, and uh, it's all such a beautiful thing to watch because of the musical support. Yeah. And that's true of, of Singing in the Rain. They were having a hard time with that scene of getting it right, figuring out how to do it. And finally, Kubrick said to Malcolm McDowell, uh, can you dance or sing or, or something? Uh, do you know any songs? And Malcolm said, well, let me, let me think. I know a Singing in the Rain. And he began doing it and doing a little dance step, and that's how that scene developed, really. Mm. Um, and then Kubrick said uh, to his assistant director, you know, we've got to get the rights for that song now, so you you go take care of that, and we'll, we'll shoot this with Malcolm. Um, 
And it's that's a fascinating scene because, of course, it takes a piece of music that we all know and love, film goers at least know and love, uh, that has a very different connotation in the other movie and just underscores this thing beautifully. It does. Uh, and then when the, and then when a clockwork orange is all over and we suddenly hear Gene Kelly singing it, we think, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, what, what, what world are we in now? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I can't imagine that Gene Kelly was very pleased with that. <laughs> Apparently he wasn't. Uh, Malcolm yeah. McDowell has spoken of meeting him at a party or something and, and Kelly giving him sort of a quick brush off. Mm-hmm. What fascinates me about a lot of Kubrick's films is he's he see, he seems uh, very interested in, in the duality of man. I mean, and and for a viewer, a lot of times it's not easy to to digest because most films mm-hmm. most films program us to to know exactly how we're supposed to feel about a character. Uh, but Alex is, I mean, he's a he's a murderous thug, and yet he's deeply moved by Beethoven. You know. Yeah. Can you can you talk about those things? Well, he's very that... complex. I mean, it, it's interesting. You go from, um, say, Doctor Strangelove, which I enjoy immensely, but which is a much simpler film than 2001 and A Clockwork Orange, where both technically and thematically you get a, a um, complexity and a density that we haven't experienced in Kubrick's work before. Mm-hmm. Um and that's certainly um and that's something that I, that one would say continues to develop in his work i mean he is he is a filmmaker who's always trying new things uh always pushing the envelope so that yes there have been you know, horrific events in films but along comes a clockwork orange and he just ups the ante um so that you get something that you you can't believe you know uh, yeah. And then you go on to The Shining, you know, and you go on and on. Um, it's really quite amazing. Now yeah, I want back to your question. What was uh, me too? I mean, the, the duality, <laughs> yeah. the duality aspect. How how? I mean, his his characters are very. I mean, people talk about that he seems so distant uh, as a filmmaker, and you seem distanced from these characters, but. But I think he embraces all aspects of his characters, and he, like I said before, he doesn't necessarily judge judge them. Right. I think that that's what audiences are feeling. Yeah, and that's very true in Eyes Wide Shut too. Yeah. Um, you have that same sort of um, complexity with the character, um, and on the one hand, he I, I do feel he's very close to those characters, mm-hmm. but. You know, we have to. Uh, he's not judging them. He's setting them there for us to figure out what's going on in their lives. Hmm. And the, the same is true with Alec Delarge. That uh, we're uh, we're drawn into his world. He's so uh, appealing in some ways, um, but he's also very deceptive and uh, deceitful. And um, and we have to try to figure out. Um, where we stand towards such a character, just as yeah. we do with the couple in uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Um, and, we, and, and another thing those two projects share is the, um, the relationship between dreams and 
I, I hate to hesitate to call it reality, but um, you know, in eyes wide shut, what is real and what is not real? Mm-hmm. And um, we can wonder the same thing about um, parts of a clockwork. You know, another thing that I, I was struck, I saw Eyes Wide Shut again recently, and I was struck by how in terms of its plot, it develops in ways that are similar to A Clockwork Orange. You have in A Clockwork Orange, uh, Alex, having these experiences in the first third of the movie, and then after he's been cured, in quotation marks, um, and he comes home to his parents, he goes out in the world and he re-experiences so many of the things he'd done in the first third. You know, he mm-hmm. runs through the same events. He encounters the old man, the old bum on the bridge, um, and the bums try to beat him up, uh, and so forth. He goes through one thing after another. Uh, the droogs attack him again. They're now policemen, but uh, so we have a repetition of events at the end. And the same thing is true in Eyes Wide Shut, where you have the protagonist going through the same series of events, although, uh, albeit not in the same order in which he uh, encountered them the first time, but exactly the same things and trying to sort it out. You know, he when he goes back to the hotel uh, looking for Nick uh, the second time, he has this this homosexual encounter, which parallels the encounter he had with the college students when he first starts out uh, the evening before that. Mm-hmm. And then, he, of course, he goes back to the mansion. Uh, he goes back to the prostitute's apartment. He relives all these things. He tries to, he tries to get back in touch with the daughter of the, of the man who's just died. Um, and you have this repetition in, in both movies, uh, repetition with a difference and a repetition which leads towards some sort of uh, moment of uh, insight at the end of the movie. Yeah. Do you think, because it, it's been read many ways, do you think a large portion of his journey is in a dream state in Eyes Wide Shut? Well, it's it's very interesting because... I'm aware when watching the movie of the fact that um, the apartment, for example, is very much like the apartment Kubrick grew up in. It's Mm -hmm. modeled on on the apartment he grew up in, except that it has now art that has been been produced by his wife and his stepdaughter on the walls. But it's a very similar apartment. The Greenwich Village is like the Greenwich Village of his youth. He lived in Greenwich Village. He knew it well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's sort of uh, there's a very personal aspect to that film um, that plays into your question about the dreamlike state. It's in a sense it's Kubrick visiting um, old sites, uh, sites of his youth, dealing with parts of his youth, dealing with this this issue which must have uh, preoccupied him throughout his career. Uh, and that's the question of uh, all the unrealized projects that sat on his shelves and the mm-hmm. difference between making a film and dreaming about a film uh, or preparing for a film. You know, he to the very end, he was aware of the fact that he had, was not a, a, a very productive filmmaker uh, measured against some of the other greats uh, of the century. But he had many, many projects that he thought of, um, 
And this notion, this is all, uh, that is also a part for me of the movie Eyes Wide Shut. Um, you have that series of black and white fantasies of uh, Dr. Bill about his wife. And at each one, she's more and more undressed and, and having sex with this other guy. Um, that never really happened. And yet that dream is what, at least we think that never happened. <laughs> I shouldn't say, you know, I'm reluctant to say in any Kubrick film that never happened. Um, we don't think it really happened. Um, yeah. But uh, that's what motivates him then to go on and do these things. Uh Parts of the movie, though, are, seem very uh, dreamlike and very staged. Um, the whole orgy scene is, as as um, the character at the end of the uh, uh, film, played by Sidney Pollack, says, "You know, that was not real. That was just a performance." Yeah. Um, so, what is real and what's a performance? And there's and there's a um... There's a kind of unreality to the the city streets. I mean, there in, in several Very much films. So. I, I mean, the, the, even even Vietnam. I mean, in in Full Metal Jacket, I understand that he shot these in in England, but you know, we've obviously seen movies shot in Vancouver that look just like New York City, and yeah. so it's not it's not that it ha- it had to have been intentional. Yeah, and sometimes it really works. And sometimes um, this would be uh, one of my criticisms of, of Lolita. Um, I don't think the uh, cross-country part of that film really works for me. Um, in the novel, it's so important, the traveling around that Humbert does with Lolita. And um, I think Kubrick made a mistake trying to do that in England. Other times, like the reconstruction of New York in, in uh, Eyes Wide Shut, um, that really works for me. Mm-hmm. It has a um, sort of unreal reality. Yeah, th- that is ver- that is very moving. I think so too. Um, and, and another read of Eyes Wide Shut is that he was, you know, it's about it, it's about the security of marriage and when that security is shaken, and the journey you you take. Beyond that point, a lot of people argue that he was sleepwalking through his life prior to the point of Nicole Kidman's confession, and then he was awake to what was around him in the outside world. Uh, so that was another read I heard on Eyes Wide Shut. You know, they, I don't care if he wasn't uh, as productive as other filmmakers. We, we're talking about. Oh, films. I agree. I, I didn't mean to criticize him for that. I'm just oh, saying no, no, that no, I think no, no, this no. is something he was. Very much it was very much on his mind. Yeah, I I know you weren't criticizing him, but I've heard that in the past from from people that were critical of him. Forty years after these films, we're still arguing over the film's mysteries. You know, it, it, yeah. what other filmmaker does that for you? Well, exactly, and we're also continually um, all of us carry around in our minds these powerful images. It, you know, it's. I know he began as a still photographer, and mm-hmm. that I think had a, an enormous impact on his work as a cinematographer. We, me, I speak for myself, but I think this is true of a lot of people who've seen his films, uh, and is one of the signs of his greatness. There are these images that we cannot eradicate from our consciousness. He frames yeah. things so beautifully. 
Uh, and I don't mean just major moments in the film, but sometimes very minor moments are mm. just, you know, hit us so strongly um, that we can't, we can't forget them. He and, is so you know, very precise. Thing I, I think yeah. about in his films is sense of innovation. I mean, the A Clockwork Orange has these wonderful long tracking shots. Often he'll start with a close-up, and then he'll pull way back, because he does in that theater scene where we see the, the ornamentation above the stage, and then he pulls way back. And then he only cuts to a close-up when we have the, uh, the, the Druk. He's challenging uh, pull out his uh, switchblade and snap it. You know, it's a beautiful shot. That's one of those mm. shots you don't forget. Uh, but he's always pulling back, or he'll start long and he'll move in close. Then suddenly he gets the steady cam, you know, with the shining, and a whole new world opens up. Yeah. He's just yeah. going from, he's always looking for um, new ways of doing things. And oh, okay. uh, similarly, you can see him experimenting with light in A Clockwork Orange, all those rooms that are lit by the uh, natural lighting of the room, the, the lights from the ceiling or the standing lights or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. That really leads right into Barry Lyndon and the wonderful experimentation he does with natural light there where he has all those scenes set by candlelight. Yeah. So it's uh. just... You know, it, it's fascinating to look at his work and to see him developing and changing and trying out new things and going back to uh, preoccupations he's had before. Um, and, and one of the things about uh, Eyes Wide Shut, again, is that it is it is a final moment. It's almost as though he knew that, and he's summing up so much of his career, I think, in that movie and so many issues that he he's dealt with in, in other films. Um, yeah. Come to and the also, in that movie. Also, I think that his movies are always open for reassessment, and I, I have found that movies that didn't particularly capture me when I first saw them, I return to them like I have in the past month, and uh, they play very differently for me because I, I mean, I'm different. I'm receptive yeah. to them in a way that I wasn't years ago mm -hmm. for some of these titles. So it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, but one common theme. Uh, and I'll let you go. You've been so generous with your time, but I, I wanted to ask about his his view on institutions. Uh, he strikes me as someone that did not trust power, <laughs> uh, and he he comments on it in a lot of his films. And of course, with Clockwork, uh, the, the government, the the establishment yeah. that tries to correct uh, Malcolm McDowell's uh, criminal ways. I, I, Clockwork may be the clearest statement of his views. Uh, mm -hmm. And the Ludovico treatment, which is, you know, taking Ludwig van Beethoven and twisting, putting him, twisting him on his head. Um, it's interesting too, though, in that movie where he's showing us the uh, corrosive effects of power and really the fascistic state that's that's trying to um, cure this young man. What does he make him do? He makes him watch movies mm. with his eyes wide open. Uh, and there he sits, uh, doing what we've just been doing for the last, what, 45 minutes. Uh, we have had the option of blinking or turning away from the violence, but he doesn't have that. So it's a very metafictional moment in the film. It's wonderful that is, that is part of this cure. Uh, he has his protagonist watch movies and watch violent movies 
and watch movies where Beethoven is uh, on the soundtrack. <laughs> you know, it's wonderful. Uh, people sometimes say uh, that Kubrick doesn't have a sense of humor, but, you know, there it is. Yeah. Um, there, and there's so many things, uh, there are little incidents that are that are funny. I'm watching the movie again, and when Deltoid um, comes into Alex's was in Alex's parents' bedroom, sitting on the bed, talking, and he picks up that glass and drinks uh, what he thinks is water or something, and, and then finds the dentures in the bottom of the glass. It's a hilarious moment, <laughs> and, and the movie, you know, the movie is filled with moments like that. They're they're just there, um, but. Uh, Kubrick wasn't the uh, cold, uh, distant person that uh, he's often characterized as being. And I find that most of his films do have a, an extremely dark humor to them that, that a lot of people miss out on. And, and, yes, and Clockwork, I think so. The scene that I always laugh at in Clockwork, it's, it's, it's in the way it's played between Malcolm McDowell and Patrick McGee when they're at the dinner table. Uh, and and, Pat, and he knows that Malcolm was the was the one that broke in and, and, and raped his his wife. Uh, and the way Patrick McGee plays that, uh, it's his, his delivery, oh. yeah, <laughs> it's really brilliant. And and the uh, eating scene at the end of the movie, where the um, uh, uh, you know government official is, is feeding him in bed, mm. is also a brilliant scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malcolm's lying in the hospital bed, you know, and the uh, government official comes in, and, and, and Malcolm is like a little bird, popping open his mouth and snatching the food and popping open his mouth. He's mm-hmm. brilliant in that movie. It's it's a, a perfect match of character and actor. You know, we've had a lot of <clears throat> a lot of films that have dealt with violence since *A Clockwork Orange* in very provocative ways. Um, what do you think is unique about the, the legacy of, of A Clockwork Orange, though? Well, it's very interesting because, uh, I mean, I should ask you about your experience. You've seen all these these films again recently. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, Clockwork Orange continues to amaze and fascinate, and even in its treatment of violence, although... Um, as you say, there are movies, subsequent movies, and even prior movies. Um, you know, the '60s had some some violent movies, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, what he does with the violence there, I think, is something that um, people still don't. Many filmmakers have tried to top him, but they don't understand quite how he's using it or what he what he does with it. Uh, it's not just a question of a lot of violence um, in a film. It's the way that Cooper presents it. Uh, you know, I've shown this to students who are quite jaded, um, and they think, oh, you know, a movie from way back then. Um, and they see it, and they're astonished by this movie, uh, even though they've grown up on um, movies that are in some ways much more violent. But it's the attitude towards the violence and the way he depicts it that I think characterized Kubrick. You know, you can look at two minutes of a Kubrick film and you know where you are. You know you're in one of his movies. Mm-hmm. He has such a distinctive style. Um, and that is what shapes the uh, the material in A Clockwork Orange and makes it 
still as important for us as it was when the movie came out. The issues it raises, the way those issues are treated, um, it's a movie that, um, well, as Ezra Pound once said, poetry is news that remains news. And I think Mm. you could say the same thing about A Clockwork Orange. It's news that remains news. (laughs) 